Hey all, Trevor here with Right of Leaf, and today we've got Nathaniel from Freedom Cannabis on the Bud Tender Series podcast. I'm really excited to have him on. We cover a variety of subjects, including how they grow their cannabis at Freedom and how the actual family or team cohesive approach is applied at the Freedom Cannabis based facility in Edmonton. I'm really excited to make my way out there and uh, actually see the uh, the buds and the plant care that they provide firsthand. But with that being said, let's go ahead and dive right into this podcast because when uh, the Zoom call got started, we just got started. So cheers and let's get into it. You know what? Pretty good. It's a, it's a cleanup day. We just finished harvest yesterday. So it's a... a yeah. Just getting back to normal for a couple days before we have another one, right? So, um, yeah, it's good that balance. reset and transition, right? Well, it for me, it's the most serious part of the grow because the the yeah, just the sanitation, cleaning up, getting the room completely spick and span. Um, that's the only way you avoid micro like three months down the road. Oh, exactly, so, most important thing to do. So, what'd uh, you guys just take down? Uh, we just took down a crop of secret formula. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, It's been pretty good. I think the last six or seven cycles, we've done 28 to 30% THC. Uh, the one before this, I think it hit our record. We hit 31.5. Nice. So that's what's in um, that's what's in our reserve cans right now. I don't know if you've seen them in stores yet, but... No, I haven't. I haven't seen them pop up yet, but definitely look forward to getting my hands on that. I've been smoking a lot of the birthday cake lately, and nice. It's, it's that, nice. That's like uh, that's like the every day, all day. Honestly, for me, I I can't I can't really smoke the secret formula slurricane on a regular basis. Like any of those really high THC dosy dos is uh, it's a little too much for me. So happy to grow it, but. It's just a little too intense for an everyday use. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed the Slurricane. I just find the turp profile for the wedding cake or the birthday cake just a little bit more in my wheelhouse for, like, heavy effect. Like, it hit harder than the Slurricane did. But I know that cake generally gives me a good high. Yeah. So. You know, it's, it's the funny thing. Like, I love growing the wedding cake or birthday cake in Alberta, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's heavy yield, but it stays where it is. You're never going to go above that, you know, 24, 25% on it. And that was one of the painful things about being in wholesale for so long and not having any, uh, any retail presence was, you know, everyone buying from us was like, Hey, grow something heavier, grow something heavier. Um, <laughs> it's all about the tests, right? Um, so you sacrifice like that wedding cake. I think sometimes our terpenes are 3%, 3.5%. And it's like, that's that's what the everyday consumer kind of wants. Um, the more terpenes, the better. The more effects. You're either going to get the knockouts or, uh, well, there's your medicinals, right? I don't really know the, the terpenes that well. I know the retailers actually get to do a whole lot more with that. but And we're not even allowed to say anything. Like we can't say, oh, this is good for sleep because it has mercy and or like none of that stuff is allowed. So it's (laughs) 
yeah, it's like the weirdest thing. Like we're not allowed to talk to retailers to some extent, unless I'm going in as a customer and not saying where I'm from, you know? So really I just go into retail stores and I'm like, Hey, do you have freedom? Oh, you don't know about it. That's like, okay, well, please. You're the closest store to my house. I'd love if you, uh, you order that in once or twice. Yeah. So what's exact, what's your position exactly within freedom? You know what? Titles, uh, Health Canada, I'm the master grower. Right. Uh, in the office, we don't go by any of those uh, highfalutin titles. So yeah. I'm just a manager. Um, what I normally say is, you know, I work every day growing people. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not the best grower in the office by far. Like the guys work in that room. Um, just shout out Bruce, Devin, Caitlin, uh, Matt. They are far and away the most dedicated people and uh they know everything you ask them about you know lighting arrangements they got it you ask them about environmental changes and vpds adjustments they know every single piece and it's the odd thing like you can't be everything in cannabis especially when you're at this size uh even the best home growers have a really hard time transitioning because you got a thousand plants 1200 plants in that room um you know i think the average home grower spends like 20 minutes a day with their plants try doing that in a place like this you'll have an eternity on your belts right um here it's like we have certain rules like talk nice to the plants no abuse allowed right um and yeah it's just it's just a very weird thing but for me, it's all about just making sure that those people are super happy. They have everything they need and then they put out the best possible product, you know, um, freedom's pretty small. Our growth site is, you know, 18 to 20 people, depending on, you know, are we in harvest or not? And then we have, you know, another 15 packaging stuff for other companies. Um, yeah, I'd say I, we're not craft though. Like we're craft size as far as rooms, but there's 50 people working here. It's a pretty big business. So, so it's almost that that's um, step up from craft. I don't, there isn't really a title for it, but within the Canadian yeah. market, it seems like we almost need one because there's a lot of um, producers that are slightly bigger than what craft is, where you've got a half a dozen core people and then you may have three or four people who come in to help trim mm -hmm. versus a shop that may have the size of craft but you're able to support a little bit of a larger employment base and it's more of a team and more of a co-op kind of an approach versus that kind of structural approach right for sure like I, it's hard to say because there's so many companies that fit into that let's say it's a medium size just above craft but not quite uh you know your top 50 public companies those guys um you know there's small guys like palm gardens at edmonton you know i think they're 20 people and you know they're they're in two provinces they're fully capable of supplying alberta ontario without issue um i can't believe companies that small can even survive right now because you know you have the taxes you still have the same amount of staff. Like you need an accountant. You need, obviously need all that QA and uh, regulatory stuff. Um, I, I can't imagine how 
the big mark i'd say most of us most of the lps i think there's 800 there's got to be at least 250 that are sitting in that medium size yeah um well outside of aurora and bazam for the facilities in edmonton they would all be craft micro or that medium size and probably two-thirds of them would fall within that upper echelon of craft into that medium size scale yeah yeah i'd agree like, that like there there's like you were saying palm gardens there's um uprise there's also partake in there bazam's got a facility aurora's got its large facility which is shutting down and downgrading every single six months yeah. you see loss and loss alberta bud, alberta bud. um there's also all of the other um white bag providers the wholesalers that sell mm -hmm. out and produce within edmonton but they don't actually have a brand on the market which with the transition within the the law now and yeah. the ability to have that direct to consumer for bud you might see a little bit more of that local branding pop up, but there's quite a few steps to get it to the Alberta market, let alone on the Canadian market. So there's kind of give and take to looking at that. Yeah. It, the distribution in all the provinces is pretty interesting because, you know, like minimum order sizes, I don't know how any micro, like Upright is a good example because they sell to AGLC. And I don't know how they do it because, you know, a minimum order from AGLC could be five kilos and they're producing, you know, that might be a, a crop for them. Yeah. Like your whole crop into one skew, like how many pre-rolls are you making, yeah. you know? Um, and it, it's a real challenge. Like for, for us, I think we have to, every single thing we grow has to go to Alberta and uh, you know, what's left goes to Ontario and can't even imagine being anywhere else you know like we do small amounts in saskatchewan and the territories but it's like you can't even keep up it's oh and and when you have competitive price points too with the thc percentages that you guys have been able to achieve that within the canadian market for what's being purchased is going to have you consistently selling out yeah like, yep. like the, the, the THC demand is, is not going anywhere. And for the next four to five years, you'll start to see it dif differ a little bit, but it's not going to drop from, from that little bit of a cliff that it's sitting on right now. Yeah. Yeah. At some point it stops being a commodity and you start seeing like, it just averages out everywhere and 18% with great Terps is going to be exactly the same as a 25 plus um as far as pricing so that that upper premium and premium shelf is just well it ends up being marketing I, well, it's such a there there's uh, gonna be unique products are able to break in there because it's the first of right like a peanut butter breath when it first broke into the market down in the states you you can put a couple do extra dollars on that three and a half gram and sell it because it's the first of you've got yeah. that kind of initial grab commodity like you're saying but as soon as it's been within the cannabis industry month and a half two months that it's regularly accessible most of the the heavy smokers have already moved on to something else like 
when are we even going to get variety? Like licensed producers can't even bring in genetics. So unless you're lucky enough to have got your license and have all those uh, legacy genetics, like you, you don't have much to work off of. You can't go buy it anywhere either. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing that I've heard when talking to licensed producers is you had master growers or head growers or, the the main investor who's kind of the seed bank coming in and they just had hundreds of genetics and they're like i've got all these saved up i've been saving up for years i'm bringing them in so that we have access to them now whether you actually have a banger come out of any of those genetics you're having a totally different conversation because you have to see the viability of the actual genetic you got in there the ability to increase the size for a mass market because when you're even craft it's a mass scale it's not homegrown approach then you got to stress the shit out of it to make sure that it can handle the stresses that are guaranteed to happen within there then you got to see if all the clones can handle all those three things again like (laughs) and that's a year like 10 months to a year if you're lucky it's a huge, uh, huge investment. You're constantly in research and development. Like right now, I've got some 80 strains sitting in my my mom room. And uh, well, I couldn't possibly grow all of them. I can pick two, three at a time at most. So it, it yeah, I, it's, a, it's a pain point that Health Canada has put on the, the growers. And I think I, it made sense at first where it's like, hey, the newcomer has some advantage to come in. Maybe that increases their value a little bit, but at the same time, like the big guys are just able to just buy another company and bring in whatever they want anyway. Like you have this window when a company gets licensed where they're like, we don't know where it came from, but as long as you tell us about it, it's all good. And that's a massive advantage. These canopies and auroras, you know, they just sell a company or just, stop operating it just to turn it back on six months later to bring in whatever genetics they want yeah and that's that's at a point i was actually going to get to when you look at canopy and aurora canopy especially with the amount of acquisitions they've been having they're buying these companies left right and center and then the companies just stop producing it's like okay are you just acquiring them for their it because if it's just their internet like intellectual tech and intellectual property yeah. like that you're just kicking these brands out and removing an, another individual company operating that could have had something really interesting so the i think i know why the big guys are doing that so the provinces are lightening up on how many SKUs they actually approve mm-hmm. so if you're a company say palm gardens you have 15 SKUs in market that's a great target you know oh i'll take their 15 SKUs. i don't even need to fill them but because they're off the market now, my stuff is going to have more shelf space. Oh. <laughs> yep, that's that. It's so it's pretty well the same approach as when you go to the Cana Cabanas and the larger dispensaries, where it's like, okay, here's the money that we're going to offer you, or we're going to close you out by opening a shop and underselling you. It's the same. It's yeah. the same type of approach. It's, it, it's there's. A yeah, exactly. And and the amount of celebration I'm seeing with the pricing 
oh, the prices are going down. The prices are going down. It's like about six months ago, the prices were at a pretty happy point for me. 10 bucks a gram for your standard, decent quality, your double, triple A bud. That's not unreasonable for three and a half grams. 10 bucks a gram within Canada is not unreasonable. You're paying 12.50 for the premium, 15 for something unbelievable, like absolutely mind-melting. Yeah. That's at least understandable if the growers are receiving 60% of that return. Not the government the other receiving 70 to 80% of the tax return, depending on which province you're in. Yeah, like Alberta, I think it's $1.60 a gram. goes straight to the province. Yeah. And then you still have to pay taxes after on your profit. So it's a big number. In Ontario, it's like 50% of everything goes to the government. I think that was, uh, yeah, the strat can was, that's what they're listing. And uh, it sucks because it doesn't help the consumer at all. Like the retailers still, you know, they're doing that 10 to 30% margin on everything. But well, it, at the, when you look at the retail, how much is retail different from shop to shop to shop when you go that it's retail it's going to be approached very similarly within the regulations that we have it's like when it goes province to province you see bigger swings and bigger shifts in the actual um cash value of some of the products and it's mainly because the amount of hands that are in the pot within the government side and the people who are distributing it because you look at saskatchewan where you have kind of two two core distributors being Canna Cabana and then I can't remember what the other one's called, um, but they provide for more of the local dispensaries. Yeah, like Fire and Flower. They yeah. have a renamed version. Yeah. Yeah. And then Fire and Flower has their Pineapple Express that they utilize. And there's a couple of other systems that are used there where Alberta, it's directly from the AGLC. They throw it on a Grimshaw trucking truck, truck for us and it gets delivered here on Thursdays. Yeah. Right. Like totally different. Um, ways of delivery that cost different amounts of money and oversight is totally different from province to province. So how does that work? You have to pay shipping for the orders? So I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure how the billing goes. Cause I was just a bud tender in the shop, but I did get to help go through and actually develop the orders and curate the menu that way. But it's just an order through the, the, what used to be the albertacannabis.org website they or that's exactly what retailers are looking at that exact website is what they're looking at but with a retailer access so they see the wholesale price they see the per box not per unit they that's a secondary piece of information and then i don't know if it's been adjusted to where they're ordering through there but there's an excel sheet that you go ahead and fill out it gives you the total amount of available boxes within the province and then it tells you if you are a guaranteed one so it's it was something like 85 or 90 percent of the shops have the ability to pick one if they want you're they tell you you're guaranteed a box essentially okay so and there's lots of times you go and you'll see three boxes of something and no one's going to try at it because they're like oh well it'll be gone yeah Kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. I bet that stuff just sits on the shelf too. It's three, three cases. And then, Hey, Oh, I guess it'll sit there for 
four months. Yeah, it'll sit there until they get a re-up of something. And then three people are going to get absolutely bent by getting the old product because there's been plenty of times where we've seen, oh, there's a new drop at this percentage and I let them know it's coming to Alberta and we go ahead and we get the order and there is a dozen of them left. We get one box that's the old shit and one box that's the new stuff. And guess what's got to go on the shelf and sit there and now make the new stuff that much older because you can't... Well, it devalues both of them. Oh, exactly. Like, you can't even put them side by side and be like, hey, I have the old lot. It's a dollar cheaper. Here's the new lot, right? Like, the consumer won't even won't even trust that. It's like, yeah, yeah. bait and switch a little bit. Um, for us, I've been finding that, you know, before I can even access our stuff from AGLC or even at the retailer, it sat on a shelf for at least 30 days. Like, we packaged it. We shipped it. They've reordered. We've shipped a second and a third batch. And I'm just now finding that lot hitting stores. It's like, it's such a weird experience. And I don't know if you see that ever. Well, there's, there's been times and with your ounces are a perfect example where we've seen the white, black, white, black bags with two different package dates. We've gotten one where it's like 60 days old. And then we get another one that's almost a hundred days old. And then we get back to that 60 day old at that point, 75, 80 days. Yeah. And then we go back to that other one. And it's like, how are we getting the old lot after we got the new lot twice? Trust me, we're as confused like, as well. Like, we're asking the same thing. Like, are you just taking our new boxes and putting them on top and picking off the top of the cases again? Like, there's some warehouse practices at age. You'll see that I'm not quite yeah. understanding how that works. Like, we moved away from the, the black mylars. I can't even remember. It feels like ages ago. Because we were like, oh, let's try and do a recyclable. We only went to the black because, you know, supply chain issues. We couldn't even get white white mylars. Um, it, it's so funny. Like, they make things so complicated. And it's one piece where that would make the consumer so much happier if we could have just liquidated the other stuff in order. Well, um, and, and it would have... Then it's, okay, you've got... You could have, you could even separate it by lot. It's like okay, the first dozen boxes that are going out, somebody's going to get the older lot. After that, they're going to the new. The only, the only time that I could see them pulling from the new is if they're restocking the AlbertaCannabis.org, which they're not operating anymore, so it shouldn't be a factor. Yeah, you fill it from the back and you pull from the front, and you get rid of the old stuff first. Like it really <laughs> should be that simple. You, you make a fair point that uh, the, the AGLC, when they shut down their site in March, is this all product they had reserved off the side and it's just fallen back into rotation? Like there's... The timing would kind of make sense, but... Hmm. Well, when not... It hasn't been as bad in the last, I would say, 18 months of the operation of Alberta Cannabis, but in the beginning there'd be quite a few of canopy boxes and the other boxes that you know they're using their own tape that the boxes have been resealed and shipped out our way. Okay. So they've been cracked. They've been put on stock. We put the order in. And of course the, I learned to learned a little about six months into working that the retailers have a priority, which is awesome to hear that they would just seal up a box, probably throw a 
throw the jars back in there, seal up the box, and then ship it our way. And wow. re-up with the new ship. So it's like you're fulfilling the orders, but we're not getting uh, the quality. And that became less of an issue when they were, had the backlog of stock to fulfill, which was nice. Yeah. We have had to do that a couple times. AGLC would call us and say, hey, is there a mistake on your label or something? Let's relabel it. And they actually rip all our cases open. And it's like, it's super cheap for us to just pay them to relabel product. Yeah. Um, that's the only reason I ever see them actually ripping open a case and then re reclosing it. That's. But that would, but again, this was 2018, 2019 when the online ordering and the market was just getting fired up. We didn't have the, the product available for them to have almost their own kind of separate stock worth. Okay. Because then once, once it, I would say, yeah, about six months into me working, which I started the August. So it would have been about nine months into the industry. It, we saw it on the odd thing. Like when it was um, the, oh, the first ounces that came up, came out from Aurora, the daily special. We'd see that a lot because it's just the retailers are flying through it that they have to pull from Alberta cannabis to maintain and stuff. And it was like, Oh, we're not getting old stuff. We're just getting the, what they were trying to use and we're moving through it too fast. And you still see it from time to time on again, the stuff that's just flying off the shelf. Hmm. What is flying off the shelf right now? What do consumers want? Where's the trend going? Um, well, I've been out of the shop for about three weeks now um, since corporate took over my local shop. I, there, I've got to go through all the details of that, but yeah, Catacabana bought out the local dispensary and the management is not within what I wanted to do or wanted to deal with is right. the best way to put it to keep things civil right now. But, yeah. Um, yeah. The atmosphere changed pretty quickly. But within my local area, high THC is always in demand. Um, really good kind of gassy and potent flavors are starting to become really high in demand. But that's a summer thing. People like that real kind of heavy stank out when they're outside on the beach. They don't enclose the smoke and have to deal with the smell afterwards so much. So they like to go with that really rich um, kind of a flavor. There's some people getting excited because you're starting to see the runts and a little bit more candy strains pop up. Um, okay. I'm hoping that we get almost more like the land race and a little bit more of the OG kind of approach on the market, because if we got a really good true sativa, like something that was a genetically true sativa, like yeah. Whistler had the chocolate open. It's really the only genetic base sativa that really shown the way when you open up the container you ground it up like it had something there but they take so goddamn long to grow that it's hard to yeah. justify it <laughs> even even our outdoor season like i can't imagine if the outdoor growers are going to try it but it's it just takes too long it's oh. it's not commercial the weight doesn't isn't there you spend so much on nutrients uh like I love the mimosa that we grow, 
But if that mimosa wasn't like some really wacky, like I don't even know how much sativa it is anymore because it's like a 55 day, like it's fast. Jesus. Um, it's nice because it has, you know, those citrus profiles, yeah. but that's the closest thing to a sativa we grow and it's hybrid. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and everything's going to be so hybridized just for the speed, the speed and the yield. And then yeah. the, there's also been kind of an a, approach to more of that cookie style genetic bud structure because mm. that just got so hyperbreded to everything for a while that the small dense nugs or big cake nugs are what you want to find. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like, yeah, the grandpa stash, anything like that, the grandpa stashes and the cookies and the gorillas, they just yield like per plant. You don't have to do anything. Nope. It's, well, it's easy mode. Just well, and a lot switch. of, a lot of the co- like cookies genetic, I know is pretty resilient to a lot of pathogens and a lot of viruses. So yeah. when you go and you scale it up, you don't have as much concern. The gorilla glue side of things, because it does come from that hermaphroditic line, it can be an issue. But if you've got a good base seed and it's been crossed into itself enough times, that hermy side doesn't need to be that big of an issue. Like the commercial grows, most of them are in LED now. So you don't have the light stress. Your heat stress is way easier to control. As long as you can, you know, control the humidity, you're not going to have any issues. Like the stresses almost disappear. Um, you just got to worry about not molding out your crop. Um, and that's one of the things, like some crops are just way more resilient. Like the bacterial, they're antibacterial in some, uh, in some cases. And yeah, you don't have a problem. Like uh, the white fire, the white fire, it performs, but it is one of those hermaphrodite leaning strains and we hate growing it it's stressful like you're watching it and making sure you don't seed out you know get rid of those uh uh pollen pods asap especially in a big room if thousand plants if 10 of them seed out oh yeah exactly if you if you end up having just one plant hermaphrodite on you like it, one bud, one bud going to a male-based um, pollen, and you half that room is seed, or the whole room is seed, depending on where that male's placed for air movement and all that. Because it just takes yeah. one good shake, and it's everything. Yeah, like it's that's the thing about the the big size grows. Um, if you don't catch those nanners early. Like, say you have three days from the first sign. Go on a long weekend, and you if you have any pods developing on that Friday, by the time you get back Tuesday, you could be, you could be writing it off. It's, uh, that's the price you pay, right? We don't, uh, we don't even have, we- or I don't have weekends. I end up watching the crops. Oh, yeah, right. exactly. And I was actually... The last two days I've been listening to a lot of podcasts with like the dudes grow show and um, smoking with pod. And they're both like really heavily informative. And they were talking about how like hermed plants have a potential to be heavier THC yielding and a little bit um, more potent. And they've found that those 
genetics that have hermed on them a little bit have been some of the best smoke they've had. Now, when for you as a grower, has that something you've come across? I'd agree. Yeah. Like uh, the secret formula, that's the white fire docido cross. And, you know, it performs extremely well uh, as far as THC production. The terpenes are, you know, average to high, but it's because it has, I don't know if it's just because it has that playful want to, to herm or not, but uh, definitely in, in our experience, that that is true. Um, we have, we've never seeded out a room or anything like that, but uh, definitely they're, they like to, they like to change on you pretty quick. Well, and, and go, go, go ahead and finish. Yeah. And then you really just have to watch that cycle and next time around dial the lights back like two days before you hit that part of the cycle. Um, it's weird. Some plants just love the stress and some plants, if they're grumpy the whole way through, if they're grumpy as a clone, if they're grumpy in, in veg, uh, if, you know, if they don't, if they're not happy with the lighting and they're not happy with the stress you're putting on it, it's good for production, but it's, um, the stress goes both ways. And, uh, the guys here think, you know, gardening is, uh, just managing stress in the gardeners and in the plants. Um, and maybe that is it. You need that high stress kind of like pressure builds diamonds kind of thing. And yeah. those Hermes strains just are so used to handling pressure. Either it's, you know, lineage based, you know, being outdoors and dealing with. Honestly, I don't I don't think anybody really knows what they had to deal with in their crosses in their history. So. It's like muscle memory. Well, and well, when it and when it comes to like stresses and stuff, they were um, to kind of continue off that herm point. They were talking about taking plants and revegging them. And when you come into the last ten to fourteen days before you actually harvest, he was suggesting to flip your lights back to an eighteen and six. And while you're doing that, the buds at the end, since they're just packing on weight they're using that additional light to just pack on extra weight and resin. And they like, this is someone who runs a commercial grow down in the States. And I'm like, huh, I'm just interested, even if I'm not going to reveg, if I know that the last 10 to 14 days, what or not 10 to 14, seven to 10 days is what he was suggesting for cranking the lights back up to 18 and six. And since you're just feeding it water and it's cannibalizing, it doesn't have enough time to reveg, but it gives you enough time to pack those what are your thoughts on that? Because I can see you mulling it. It looks like it's something I, that. Honestly, I wouldn't be able to risk it with such a big crop. Yeah. Like, it's livelihood. Um, but it's definitely interesting. Um, when you go back into that veg state, you're sort of, you're forcing new growth again. So you're going to see fox tailing. Yeah. And maybe in that last two weeks, you're not going to, you know, it's not going to develop enough. But uh if you let it go too long, well, your buds are going to look really funky. It's like baby hands. Um, and it's the same thing if you push, uh, just keep pushing grow nutrients constantly. Yeah. At some point, you have to flush. You have to just let let the plant relax and finish. Yeah, and I, that's, that is actually a pretty interesting point. And it was, 
I'm trying to remember exactly what was the, the way that he described the, the kind of the growth point of that plant of the plant in those last kind of seven to 10 days. And he, again, it's it, when you know your plant, they're not suggesting it on your first time through. It's like, when you know, when you're harvesting this and you have your date, then flip it. And again, since it's that focus towards more reveg, it, it'd be something to play with just to see how it turns out, but you definitely have to keep track of a lot to see how it'd work. Like you'd almost yeah, have to run, plot. like you'd almost have to run two plants side by side. And then the one that you're going to crank to 18 and six, right in that last days, it gets pulled, put into a different tent. And then you let the rest of them finish off. You know what? The, the, it's something I probably could test pretty quick and just throw it back in the mum room. Yeah. And, uh, and just wait, you know, it's an interesting one though. You, you have no idea what would happen. You just got to monitor it constantly. Yeah. And there's, of course, there's going to be genetics that um, take that and benefit it, benefit from that little bit of stress. It will be a stress because you're going to be moving it, but in addition to that increased light and whatnot, you're, but if your VPD is lower in the bedroom too, right? Like there's, there's so many variables that play into it that. Yeah. Like, like, oh. That bedroom is a lot cooler, you know, three degrees makes a difference. Yeah. Um, huh. I'll, I'll run it past my guys. I don't know. That's a cool little thing. Like uh, every every year, we found new things. Like airflow is extremely important, and you know, I'd say ninety percent of of commercial grows nowhere near enough airflow. You need airflow under your table. You need airflow under your canopy. You need you know cross breeze. You need airflow at your lights. Um, you know you have to level out these humidity spots and hot spots everywhere. Um, more fans the better like well and there's just changing air yeah go ahead well there's there's upper and lower air movement too because if you don't have air movement below the plants as strong as the air movement above the plants you're still getting trapping with the co2 and the oxygen and you're not getting a proper exchange and photosynthesis yeah. within the plants your leaves can't can't uh, transpire and you know, they're not, uh, you know, the plant is a pump. If those leaves are transpiring with the water out of it, it's not really drawing more nutrients up. Oh, exactly. So it's, if it's not able to breathe, it's not living. It's, it's a living organism, just like the rest of us. It needs to be able to breathe. And the air movement is what allows it to breathe. Okay. Let's just make sure this goes through so that we can continue because I got the warning that I'm in the last minute of the Zoom call. So if it ends, I'll send you another uh, call right away, Sweet. but we should be good. There we go. Nope, we're good. We're upgraded. Unlimited we, minutes. Um, yep, just got that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those ones where I'm like, did they really change it so that it's just a 40 minute cap now for everyone? Yep. Looks like it. Guess I've got to upgrade. Oh, but it's definitely worth it because 
we like the information we've been covering is definitely directed a little bit more towards the growers and the people who have a little bit more of an understanding of how the, the plant interacts with them with itself. Now, for you guys, what are you using to grow? Is it a living soil or is it more of the bottle nutrients? You know what? We don't do either of those. Um, the living soil is something that, you know, we, we, we started out doing that because it was easy, but it's a ton of labor. Yeah. So, oh, sorry, <laughs> Mike Master, grow, my other growers coming over saying, hey, I got questions. Yeah. One sec. Hey, man, I'm uh, on a review. Uh, I just threw the ball Oh, beautiful. I brought the laptop and we took all, uh, I'll take the purge in. Okay. But, but you double check the 78 down properly. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Okay. It never ends. Uh, he's like, hey, I got to take my homework home. Uh, you know, we have to watch our, our uh, environmentals constantly. Um, he was just letting me know that we, our fogging was running. So what that is, is like, uh, we pressurize the room with uh, parasitic acid. So really high intense vinegar, just to kill every microbe. It kills everything in the HVAC units above. Um, honestly, it's the only way to, to completely reset your room back to square one. But uh, yeah, as far as as far as growing, we uh, we grow in rock wool. Okay. So we're we're hydro uh, drip. We uh, we stack one inch cubes into four inch cubes onto six inches. What that does is it uh, it promotes the root development. The roots really want to seek seek down the pyramid, and you actually have to build enough root mass that it's uh, your plants can can thrive on that. Um, we mix our own nutrients. We're at that, that high scale where, you know, you buy a, you know, gen hydro or Athena salts and you mix your own custom recipe. It's pretty close to the standard recipe, but every strain needs something different. Um, there's always additives, you know, throwing tons of cow mag at it whenever. Um, but yeah, we flush constantly so we feed flush feed flush nice. so we're always um we're getting the most out of our nutrients all the time and the plant has some time to rest and not be in a toxicity state like if you're feeding every day and you don't give it a chance to flush um doesn't happen a ton of the times but you can really get stuck in that with the living soil if you're feeding a ton to it and there's tons of nutrients there uh the plant will could take more nutrients than it needs and then you're dealing with the uh, toxicity issues like uh dark green in the leaves you know you, it should be bright green um obviously that's not as bad as deficiencies um you know phosphorus deficiency for example you know your plant's not not going to yield if you're constantly in deficiency or you're trying to recover um the other side of that is it's a lot harder to manage your pH balance because you don't have a lot of medium. So in a living soil, you have you know, a lot of soil for that, that root mass. Um, when you're in a six inch cube and all the nutrients are there, you have to be flushing it and controlling your pH level constantly. You know, that five and a half to six kind of range the whole way through cycle. And um, every time you change the recipe, you're going to be messing with that. So are you starting out on those pyramids right from the get-go? Are you um, transplanting or just bumping them up as the roots grow? 
Yeah, we transplant. So we start, we, we root them in a one inch block. Um, pretty comparable. You, you can use plugs too. Um, and then we move them to a four inch and, you know, they'll harden off and, you know, we'll get the, them fully filled out into that four inch block. Um, we used to be doing it where we would take that four inch block and we'd throw it on a, a, a grow slab. So it's like a 36 inch wide slab with a, um, kind of like a plastic bag around it. Yeah. And that bag would hold all that water in. Um, but we found like the, the plant wants a little bit of dry back. It wants to be able to have some dry air fit there, let it air prune the roots. Um, the plants get lazy if they're sitting in water all the time. So you want to have that, that stress event where, Hey, at the end of the night, there is no more water. So you're just going to start seeking. They're going to move a little bit. Um, and then the next, the next day when it gets that feed, it's just like, I'm going to soak everything up. I'm going to take every bit of those nutrients. Yeah. That was actually the next question I was going to ask you about was, um, do you guys run different wet dry cycles for each of your genetics, each of your genetics, because it seems like you're very directed to kind of optimize each of the genetics. Like, have yeah. you found that different wet dry cycles work better for each or do you try and keep that somewhat standardized just for ease? You know what? We try and keep it standard. Our two main strains, which are in five of our rooms, are secret formula and Sircane. They're both do-si-do crosses, so it's sort of similar what they want, so it makes our life a little easier. Um, but when you put something else like a mimosa in the sixth room, mimosa wants something completely different. So it has to, it has to change, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because again, I, that's with with what they're covering on those last on these podcasts. It, the wet dry cycle immediate fall immediately falls into that conversation because it's kind of affecting and directing the growth of the plant via how you're watering, what you're watering at each of the wet cycles, and how long are you letting it dry out. Right, it, yeah. and it's and and when I was hearing that, it kind of put some of the pieces together and what you're saying is covering a lot of that information which is awesome yeah, um I, there's a another reason to get away from growing in bags and that's microbial like you have you have standing water and you're pushing more water into it so it overflows out the top it doesn't overflow it doesn't drain out so what you're doing is you're trying to refresh the water you have and uh eventually you just can't like that bag is just saturated. Um, so now, yeah, the six inch blocks, open bottoms, let them drain, let them dry out, um, stress the plant on that extra level. You got lights, you got environment, and now you got root stress. So when you guys are transitioning from those smaller squares into the larger ones, do you use any like mycorrhiza or any sort of those um, root uh, encouragement or any of the bacteria like that? Um, yeah, like mycorrhizae, um, not, not a ton. Uh, you really need like a soil medium for that, but we do use some, uh, some additives that sort of replicate that, uh, microbial mass is a product that is, uh, exceptional. Um, so microbial mass, what it does is it's, a it's a, it's a bacteria and it eats nitrogen and it provides, uh, nutrients back to the plant. So what it's, it's kind of just long-term um, production. It, pr it produces the natural form of the nutrients. 
so that plant can always go back and it always has that there and it has a microbial system in place. Okay. So it, it sounds like it does similar to what like a white clover um, top covering would do where it's utilizing the nitrogen and providing microbials and additional um, kind of supporting based nutrients to the plant. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. makes, that makes sense. So it's just, um, removing the actual transitionary period of the mycorrhiza or the mycorrhiza. So it just, 100%. Applied, yeah. And it, that's one of those things you can't do. You can't introduce a second plant in the LP world. So, um, which we'd love to do, like, we'd love to be able to put, you know, um, sacrificial plants in there for our bugs. Like we use predator bugs to manage thrips and any other kind of pests. And uh, the issue is there is when they run out of food, like there's no more thrips in the room. What happens? You spend all this money on bugs and now they're just going to die off. There's no food for them to eat. Um, in the outdoor market or gray market, what you would do is you put out a plant that has uh, some nectar to eat and those bugs would go and, you know, be attracted to that plant, eat some nectar, go back. Um, I think it's the aureus predators, which are the best for that. They'll tear apart thrips, they'll tear apart mites. And uh, the only issue there is they're such good predators, they run out of food too quick. And, uh, but yeah, it's one thing that would change our lives if we were able to have sacrificial plants that literally were just there to produce pollen or nectar for predator bugs. Or just even encourage um, that healthier communication between the plants because having that little bit of a biodiversity within there, as long as it's not causing pathogen crossover, yeah, most plants do better when they're in a mixed garden. It's a like, fair point, and we're probably not, we're probably not going to be able to test that for another ten years before oh. these things change, right? Like. I, I'm seriously curious how many plants and moms do better when you're doing a little bit of a, a chemo hunt with it, because some, depending on the company and the size of the room, they can drop four or five different genetics, how, how they support one another. And then all of a sudden you take it out of that variety based experience and it's not producing the same, right? Like, absolutely. like any of those hunts commercial grows you don't even have the opportunity because you have 10 different strains or say you stocked up and you had tons of genetics. Well, we've got 80 strains of mums in that room. Every one of them is going to respond completely differently to the environmental changes. So like running large scale, um, like THC testing, any kind of research project on mums is really hard. You need like a small room, say like a 16 by 16 tent that'd be suitable you could do four strains at the same time in there any more than that it's like impossible to get accurate test results you're given one plant a kick and the other one's getting a princess treatment you know yeah like it's it, it's it's making it tough for the licensed producers when it comes to the regulation on bringing new genetics in to to really kind of throw the curveball on the market and find that to kind of go back to the point we were making earlier that peanut butter breath that is the new thing like gmo was two years ago down in california when it really yeah. took over right like there's there's one of those sitting out there but 
Canada's almost seeming to wait to hear what it is down in the States and then go and figure out how to acquire those seeds. Yeah. Which is sad because we're federally legal up here. We should be depicting the strains that are going heavy and hot down south. Yeah, I, I, I would love to see Canadian companies be able to go down to the States, compete in these contests, and actually do something. But it's try bringing plants across the border, try bringing cannabis in the States, you know, um, try bringing it to Amsterdam, you know, like it's legal here. It's not quite allowed anywhere else. Not to the same extent. No. This should be the place for cannabis tourism and all of the, this should be a Mecca. Well, there, there should be no reason why they don't have a high time set up in each of the province, like the major provinces being BC, Alberta, because yeah. on the West Coast, Alberta is the largest monetary income for cannabis. And it's, there's really no competition when it comes to BC. We're, Alberta's pumping money through like crazy. Yeah. And Ontario, exactly. It's, it is, it falls into the culture and the amount of people who just consume to get through their day of work here because of it's hard labor, manual labor. Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. crazy. The amount of apes and stuff that are just convenience wise to get through the day. And we, Alberta does have a little bit more money to spend per person. And that's where we've got some competition when it comes to Ontario, where they've got the population to fill. And Ontario absolutely should be there because they've got the population. And as much as Quebec has that draw, the regulations should keep the high times out until they sort that shit out. Quebec needs to open some Quebec's shit weird. up. <laughs> Quebec is weird. Like, for us to try and sell in Quebec would be a complete, a complete waste of time. It's just a big loss because one, you have to operate there to even get in access. And they almost want you to make a sour deal with some Quebec company just to be able to operate there. Like the offers we've gotten are like, Hey, you can sell your stuff here, but we want a 50% margin. And it's just like, okay, we'll sell it for pennies. Like it doesn't even work. And then you have Ontario where it's like our, our product, our ounce is it's a $200 ounce. You know, like I, for me, I wouldn't buy a $200 ounce. It just doesn't make sense. And I don't understand how the gray market isn't just thriving in Ontario. Yeah. It's, and that's, and that's a conversation that I've had, especially since the transition from corporate coming in and me seeing how they handle the way that they do the product and stuff like that. It's, it's very much not worried about um, the quality of the product that's being given to the consumer. It's what can we sell at the best price point and what can we guarantee is going to move. And you're going to see, and the price points continuously dropping. It's affecting you guys because you're not the ones instituting the price drops and but when the alberta government goes and institutes that tax increase that we had just a couple of months ago that they say is six percent but depending on the products it can go as high as ten percent of a bump that the retailers are or the actual producers take a cut off of their profit to keep the product similar price that it was before it's it's a dollar 60 a gram for the alberta government that's 
before we even talk about AGLC taking their their percent and then logistics taking their percent, um, it's huge. I I would bet it's more than fifty percent of the retail price goes to tax. Well, and just going with that dollar sixty a gram. The two ounces that we were getting from you were averaging between 125 and 140 for the ounce sale. And that's 28 grams. So that's $1.60 by 28. Then you add the sales tax that happens from you to the Alberta government, because that gets dinged. Yeah. Then there's the tax from when the dispensary purchases it from the Alberta government. That gets dinged. Yeah. And then when we sell it, as a dispensary that gets dinged. And then there's the AGLC feeds on top of that, which is separate from the Alberta government. And that's after the dollar 60. So you're looking at two, three, $4 a gram when the ounces are being sold at 650 to $8 a gram. So 250 to three bucks. That's what the producers are seeing your gram on the outside of the things when you go to the three and a half gram side you may be able yeah. to see that five dollar value depending on the price point that you're putting it out at which that's not huge market when it can cost up to three to four dollars to produce that gram depending on the difficulty yeah. and the actual nutrients you're utilizing it, it's tough if you're using liquid nutrients you are you're guaranteed to be at three bucks a gram. So, you know, crafts, totally recommend you guys figure out how to use salts, do your own mixes, stop buying liquids at that high end that you're paying for shipping. <laughs> like ship <Yeah>. water. <laughs> uh, but for us, like the highest margin products we have are pre-rolls and it's convenience and we can we can do, you know, 20,000 pre-rolls in a day, right? So it's, what would you like? And uh, you know what? We spent a lot of time trying to figure out what pre-roll we should be putting out. You know, a reefer-style pre-roll cone, perfect. Um, we ended up settling on those straight rolls, and I don't know if you've seen them. Uh, we call them the tailor-mades. They're in our weekender, like our 30-packs. So it's a straight cigarette roll, but it's tensioned. It's not, uh, it's not packed like a cigarette is. Yeah. So imagine doing your, your home roll, you know, <laughs> you're doing your home roll and, uh, and then you cut it in half and you get two pre-rolls out of it. That what's funny is when we saw those two pack of pre-rolls, I bought, I bought a pack and and it's hilarious because the way you broke it down was exactly how I explained how I thought you guys rolled the rolled those pre-rolls. I rolled it, I put went out to my car, I looked at it, I'm like, they just used a king size paper and cut it in half. I yeah. went back in the shop and said that. They're like, no, there's no way they would have done that. I'm like, you roll <laughs> it once, you get two joints, and you put it's in 1.15 because each filter is roughly, roughly 0 0.07. Yeah, you're pretty consistent with that one, or you just guarantee it's one gram of flour going in there. You cut her in that's half. That's exactly what it is. Like, like that's so, all it. That's all it needs, and it's perfect. 
I love them because they're exactly how I would roll my joints. They burn just exactly. how they You're rolling it at home that way. We we ended up finding a partner in uh, in Washington State, and uh, they make this machine. So the company is uh, Roll Pros. The machine is called the Blackbird, and uh, honestly, this is the best way to roll a joint. The machine is by far like you won't canoe one of our joints. No, it doesn't matter. We we have control over the glue. We have control over the paper. Um, it's not quite as simple as a king size paper, and we do it by hand. Like we have like a bobbin of, you know, five thousand yards of paper. But it ends up that's exactly what it is. We drop two, two filters in. We drop a gram of, of cannabis in, and machine tension rolls it, cuts it in half. Yeah, it's per- it's perfect. Yeah. The only suggestion that I would have with those pre rolls is having some sort of stopper for when they're bouncing around because there has been times where you end up losing half of the contents in the container just because they're so yeah. long and there's nothing you can do about the way that they get transported. So like even just like a stopper in your guys's pre-roll container just to help keep them stable or yeah. a smaller container is the only suggestion that I could think of for that. The next rounds, we're actually putting a uh, like a cotton ball, like a food oh. safe cotton ball in the top on the two packs and the three packs. Um, we actually sell a 10 pack as well. It's kind of like a cigarette pack and uh, same issue there. We just had to figure out a way to get a parchment paper in there kind of folded three ways. Because, um, yeah, like our issue is, well, Okay, it's in a container, then it's mylard, it's like super tight. And then we put it into like exact fitting boxes for the, your cases. And then it's I, every time I see a customer complaint and they're like, hey, but you know, I lost a tenth of a gram out of my pre roll. And I'm like, well, damn it, that shipping guy must be like kicking these boxes across a warehouse. Oh, like, there's, <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're, there's been some handling even by the bud tenders where I've had to go, okay, you need to understand that we need to respect this, right? Like if we're handling a thing of bath salts and you drop it, what, what are you going to do? Crush the salt a little more? You're not yeah. hurting anything, but you're carrying around a glass jar or pre-rolls or you don't just throw them around. You're yeah. wrecking the product for the consumer. Like it's tough, but you know what? The feedback is it's important for us because initially we were just trying to repurpose what we we're doing for other people. We were packaging for other companies and then saying, well, this kind of sucks. Like when we're buying it from, from the retailer of their product, we're like, okay, well, we see that issue. How do we fix that? Okay. Well, we'll go back to them. Hey, it'll be three cents more, but we'll make it. So this doesn't screw up for you, for your customers. And then sometimes company will be like, no, it's okay. Let's keep it as cheap as possible. Yeah. Um, and then we're like, okay, well, maybe these aren't necessarily the best customers to be working with all the time. And, uh, you know, then you find other relationships. Like right now we, uh, we package a lot for JVC and uh, couldn't ask for a better partner. They're like, make the best product you can for us. We already do the same kind of tin stuff. Um, and it's awesome because every product they send us is amazing. Like that landslide is probably the best, best tin I've ever bought. 
and it's not like it's insane. It's like a 23%, but it's, it's what I like, right? Uh, I wish I could be growing that. Um, it's just interesting how some companies are about the constant improvement and some companies are like, either it's because they're just starving, they, they just need to get money in the door, get the order out as quick as possible. Yeah, there's, there's definitely two different mentalities with this industry. And one is kind of throwing the rope out to help everyone else and trying to increase the knowledge and get kind of the best product and the best bud tender knowledge and information and just kind of support the industry. And then there's the people who are just struggling to keep their head above water. That, and this is outside of the larger, more corporate entities because they're in a whole nother pool to themselves. And yeah. lots of them, when you look at the larger side, are struggling in a different sense, in a long form kind of a sense, which for me isn't a bad, isn't a bad thing because it's showcasing that craft and the companies that are more that mid-scale size, like you were saying you guys are, are putting out the products that people want. Now, we need to make it easier for you guys to develop products that are different for everyone to go and enjoy. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that, that's, that should be the, a big focus for people who want to support LPs is make it easier for LPs to do that testing and that kind of opening for access and acquiring of really cool genetics. Absolutely. Like every email I, I get, it's like, hey, man, I love your product, but can you make it cheaper? And I'm like, well, okay. What if I were to release like a popcorn bag? It's nothing but smalls, but it's 25%. Would you be happy with that? You know, you do the survey and it's like, well, half the consumers just wouldn't even buy it because, well, hey, I'm advertising this popcorn, but then you have, you know, 45 emails from consumers and they're like, yeah, I would buy that. That's that's awesome. If it was the cheapest thing on the shelf, why wouldn't you buy smalls? Well, and, and the way I look at it is I would rather go buy popcorn nugs for my all day, every day smoke. I'm just grabbing something to grind. And then I go and I spend the money on the three and a half or the seven of that big, nice, massive cola. Yeah. Right. Because it's the quality of that big, large cola, but in a quantity size that provides a ability to really enjoy it over time. It's not something that yeah. you're going to admire visually, but it's something you're going to enjoy smoking. Something missing in the market right now is like no one is cooking. No one is able to go to the retailer and buy one you normally more than an ounce to do anything with. But wouldn't it be nice to go to the store and be like, hey, I picked up an ounce and I can go home and make butter or I can go home and bake right? No one is selling a product just for that. Like how much shred could you possibly buy? Well, the, the closest thing to that is the, um, I think it's actually called the bake sale, the all-purpose sativa and indica from Hexo where, but you're still looking at a $70 ounce to go and do it. Yeah. Right. Like the closest thing that I could suggest is, um, the white widow low from, uh, Divi or not Divi, um, Bonafide. Cause you can get and that, it and that's not high THC. It's not high quality. Yeah. Like it's, it's swag is honestly what it is. It's good quality, good, 
good price point Schweig for 15%. But you're not going to see yeah. it in Alberta because of the THC cap now. <laughs> so. Yeah, it just keeps going up. Keeps going up. You know, we go to register SKUs. It's like, oh, uh, 25 is a new baseline. If you don't have 25 THC, you can't register a SKU. Oh, I, I heard like, 20. It's 25? That's what we're being told. Jesus. So to be honest, we grow indicas. So we're like, okay, well, did we, our reserve line guaranteed 30%. They're like, perfect. We'll list it. If we had said 25, they would have been like, nah, we don't really want it. That, like at that point, why are we even growing different genetics? If they're wanting 25 plus percent, we should be growing the same five genetics. Dosey Doe being one of them. Oh, yeah. look at all the genetics. Oh, wait, it is one of them. Gorilla Glue being the second one. If you can get that cut that puts out wicked THC percentage, the ex-wife is really the only one that consistently yeah. is 26 plus. Well, that's that, white fire. Like it's yeah. the same thing. Like exactly. you have Wi-Fi and you have Dosey Doe. Like, like nothing else is going to deliver consistently that high. Like the cookies genetic, you're looking for that platinum based cookies that has that real high THC. And even then you're looking at the 22 plus, not the 25 plus. Yeah. Like, it's you're just asking to, to choke hold the industry and put no interesting new products out. I think that's what they want. They want like a homogenous like, marketplace. Like why, why are we turning the cannabis industry into an Everclear only business? Because that's, that it's, that is the best yeah. approach that I can describe. 99% distillate. 30% bud. Okay. Well then we yeah. might as well be drinking Mr. Clean. Right. Like, Much, let's just, yeah. well, let's be honest. I don't think distillate's going to be sticking around very no. long. No. Everyone it, is figuring out how to do live rosin and most consumers are like, yeah, that actually has flavor. I'll do that. The, the price point on it is going to be the biggest killer for the live rosin because there's people who can kick out distillate at a really cheap price. And if they can winterize it and put it out at a cheap price, it's, it's going to yeah. be tough to beat the THC draw because again, what people don't realize a 70% vape cart of live rosin with 10% terps will slap you all over the place. Yeah. Like, and it will, and it won't just hit hard and pass in five minutes. It'll hit hard and leave you absolutely floored for 45 plus minutes. Right? Like it's it's a yeah. totally different level of experience. Yeah, you really can't beat it. It's it's where everybody's gonna end up. They're gonna be if you can figure out microdosing that, that's exactly where people will, will want to be. I've I got hooked up with this toki battery and they have a wax cartridge with it and i can fill my own rosin from the press and it's there I, I started smoking this i'm like oh i don't need to buy 510 carts anymore like it it was just salt no issue i'll just smoke rosin all day out of that and i've got my own press i've got my own grow if i want to try something different 
the ounces on the market, if you can get a good quality, taking an ounce and pressing half of it into rosin is decent. As long as you're getting a gram and a half plus on yield, you're getting at least kind of what you're paying for. Yeah. So I've gotten, I've gotten pretty good return on some of the ounces I've gotten on the market. The best one I've got, the best return I got was the strawberry cake from vertical. It ended up oh, coming yeah, in yeah. at like four and a half percent terps and it was like 23 days old. I bought it that day and threw it in the freezer and then pressed it the next day. I'm like, I'm not dicking around with this. This doesn't sit on the shelf. It's getting pressed ASAP. <laughs> it wrong. was for 14 grams. I ended up getting a four and a half gram return over two different presses on it. I got two, two and a half grams on the first press. And then I got another two and a third on the second press, which is crazy for yeah. Dispo bought bud. I'm amazed you got product that fresh, like package date, 23 days, like 30 days is the freshest fresh. I've seen yours, which yeah. any, anything 90 days or, or less. And I'm excited. We're actually at a point where we're, we're like, we'll cure it a little bit less. We'll cure it for like two to three weeks, just cause we know it's still going to keep curing in those. It's, it's got 20 days. Yeah. So we'll leave it in there. By the time you open it, you should be getting that last burp. It should be that that snap of okay, I got it's there. Now, if it if it stayed on a shelf for sixty days, then you're like, oh, that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's nothing at that point. It's just diffused. But there's not much we can do at that point. Like it's. I guess it's bad on us if our product doesn't sell through in 60 days. I don't think we've been in that situation. At least most most stores are telling us, yeah, it sells out that week. And we're yeah. like, perfect. Um, but really, that's why that's why we sell the cans. Like, we want the three and a halfs to be perfect. So they're nitrogen purged. It's a sealed can. There's even a humidity pack in there once you've popped that can. Cause we want it to stay perfect for that whole weekend that you have it. Yeah. Well, and that's the, the tins are definitely outside of some of the actual lid functions on some of them, because there are some goofy tins out there for how the lids screw on. Yeah. Um, they like the work. Mood rings? I, I like the way the mood rings work, but the amount of people who've had to, they've come in and they're like, I have to take a goddamn hammer to that lid. Like, <laughs> don't you have medicine bottles at home? Right. It's like not... as soon as, as soon as I felt that arrow, I'm like, Oh, this is a pill bottle. Yeah. Like the, the BC blacks are the ones that a lot of people complain about for not being able to pop back on. Yeah. And that I absolutely agree with They're They have a great seal for the original seal. Yeah. But once you it's take funny because the BC, BC blacks, this is the same container. We use the exact same thing as them. Um, I think BC Black is a JVC company, yeah. a JVC brand. The issue with those, if you repackage it, a can or try you reuse the lid twice, the seal is meant for the first time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. If people are just trying to companies are trying to reuse these through a recycling program or what? But I've seen it too. It's one of the reasons why we're able to, you know 
take the customers that are using these cans. Um, you can't you can't redo these. Once they've gone through the machine, if it messed up, you shouldn't release it. You should repack all the product into a new can. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Like if a can just shoots off before you touched it, something's wrong. Yeah. And there's like the amount of times that the, the silicone base on that lid stays in the jar. And it's just like, it, it's not a deal breaker, but it's a pain in the ass when you're trying to get it, get a jar open and you can't crack it. Like yeah. the amount of people with the vertical pre-roll base cases, those squeeze and push, not squeeze and lift. Oh, yeah. those cause like even 34th street C they all use them. I'm surprised that they're still on the market because of how much grief people have popping those yeah. containers. Yeah. The, the J packs, like you pinch yeah. it and you try and pull it up. These ones right here. Yeah. Like it's no. what people don't know is it's squeeze and then you push that in and it just pops yeah. right open. You don't lift. If you try and lift, it's not going to work. Because it's just a real small little lip on there that snaps yeah, it. Like, like it's the child resistance kind of goes too far for some of these. They really want to be like, this is the first thing. It's the safest thing you could possibly imagine. But when companies don't realize when they're buying the product, it, the child safety report says, hey, you know, zero out of 100 kids could open this. And then it has how many seniors could open it and if your seniors can't open it what are you going to do that's like half your market right there so take it with a grain of salt when you buy packaging you need to look at hey did this work for senior citizens too because anyone with reduced mobility half of medical customers they can't open your tin and those medical customers are going to retailers now yeah and you have another thing you have to look at is what your product is being utilized for if it's a crack and grind the whole thing up then having a lid that goes back on flawlessly isn't a big issue because it's a one gram bud or it's a single use pre-roll sure that's fine that makes perfect sense and a company like caramel did a really good job with their pre-rolls they have a three pack of pre-rolls they put an actual cork in the glass tube but it's meant for you to sit down and enjoy over a weekend it's not meant to hold for six months, three months, any of the like topical or oil-based containers where you need that hard seal so that if I'm carrying this, it's not leaking all over the place, right? Your 10 pack of pre-rolls is gonna be packaged differently than your two pack of pre-rolls. Like that Ogen ounce, those containers are perfect to me. They come in like six or eight different colors. It it makes me wanna collect them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It falls into so many different categories. I literally was like, Oh, they got us. I, I wanted to do like tin cans in the like the pop can size and be like collector edition, collect the rainbow, like Skittles. Um, but those ocean containers are perfect. Like I oh. use them for everything around the house. I keep them. They're they're awesome. I, I absolutely agree. For the ounce containers, for marketable marketability within just the container and the product that they have, their seven gram containers and their ounce containers are perfect. Because the seven grams are just the beefier size. And like you can utilize those for small little kind of keepsakes and little um, like screw jars and shit like that. They're perfect for that. You're just out on a job. You need to throw something in your pocket. Like it's there's a whole side of marketing that 
companies can do when it comes to packaging that there is huge restrictions when it comes to labeling that you guys have to play with, which is a totally different conversation, but the packaging itself says a lot about a product because if you got a quality package, you're going to usually get a better quality product. And if it's something that you're going in and out of a lot, like an ounce where Ogen has that yeah. jar that stays sealed, it works really well. Your guys's bag has that heavy zipper. It holds up highly Dutch uses a very similar system with theirs. You look at tabletop, their zippers wear out relatively quick, but you're paying quite a bit less for the price. So it's what are you buying? What are you using it for? You make a very good point. And you know what? Part part of when you're shopping, you just think that's a better product because they've invested that extra. Well, in Ogen's case, I think they're like two dollars a container. Like that's a big difference when you're putting out 50,000 units a month, right? And like glass jar versus plastic, nitrogen versus non-nitrogen. Like there's yeah. all of these humidity pack versus non-humidity pack. And I even, I even go as far as what humidity pack you go to. And of course, there are some companies who just don't have access to the better um, quality um, ones that Edison use and all of those guys because they're a little bit more expensive but if you're using a bovita at least you know you've got the baseline covered yeah like in integra booths are great i know that most of these companies are coming out with like a botanical terpene one just to fight off the thing like oh it steals terpenes i was like i don't think any of them actually do i that's my personal yeah. experience i don't have the science to back that but like uh, it's mostly just say- your products drying out their oils you know they're well, it's what, what people, a lot of people don't understand is it's not the green, purple, red, whatever color the actual plant matter is that's getting you high. It's when you take that plant, you throw it under a microscope and you see those little mushroom looking bulbs on the yep. edge of that plant. The very end of those bulbs, that crystal or amber based, that oil, when it boils off and vaporizes, that's what's getting you high. The plant matter is just a carrying agent. That's why you can vaporize it and have all of that plant matter just change color. And you still get baked. Right? Like, it's, 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 like a, the- it's a huge misunderstanding that, oh, well, it's the weed that gets you high. Oh, it's the trichomes and the crystal and the oil and all of the other good shit that's in there that gets you high the plant matter just carries yeah. it and does the work of like and if it's not it. cured properly the plant matter is what gives you a headache like yeah. smoke some chlorophyll go outside smoke fresh grass it burns black you hate it it's bad for your lungs you know um it's an interesting thing like when you become a consumer and you you have any issue with your lungs you want to vape you want to be doing things like edibles and unfortunately for some people edibles just don't even work or they work way too long yeah personal experience if i take an edible i'm high for two days so like it just doesn't work for me yeah and i and i'm on the other scale where like 700 plus milligrams and have felt next to nothing right like yeah it's the way your body uptakes it. It's the way the edibles produced. Like there's, 
all of these variables that we were talking about when it comes to differentiation within the plant is how our body uptakes edibles. Like that, all of those variables, yeah. there's equivalent variables on the edible side because if it's a fat-based carrier and you're looking at the oil, the oils or the butter that are made directly from plant product. Yeah, if there's, if there's no nano emulsion in that process, almost all of that cannabis is all that THC is just getting stuck in your liver. It's getting processed into something you, your body has no idea what to do with. Yeah. Like, and there's the time of the absorption. There's the processing of your liver. And if you're consuming other things, like a perfect example is if you're consuming alcohol, when you consume alcohol, your body stops processing anything but alcohol. That's like, if you look at the people who, who drink heavily and like they're heavy workers, they work outside, but they drink beer and they go and have dinner when they drink beer. They've got that little bit of a beer belly, right? As soon as you're drinking their beer, your body focuses on what they consider as the toxin, which is the alcohol. So it's not, it's not digesting your food. Your food is just sitting there. It's hyper-focusing on the alcohol. So your body's not uptaking the nutrients, but the fats and everything else are still passing through because it carries with the alcohol. Your body absorbs fats a little bit easier than it does a lot of the other things because you need to break those things down. When you go and you add an edible into that rotation, that crossfade that you're talking about, well, I could not go into effect until three, four, five hours later, or it increases your metabolism and all of a sudden you've got that hyper effect within 10, 15 minutes. Like my girlfriend's a perfect example. She has edibles from the dispo within 10 minutes, full, full on high, like almost overwhelming, full on high. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what basis it is. If it's, if it's from the rec market within 10 to 15 minutes, she's feeling a full experience, which is crazy. That's very surprising because I think the dosage doesn't make any sense. No. I, anyone who can get high on two milligrams, fantastic. But most people will think that's nothing. And then you move up to 10 milligram. Okay, well, maybe you feel it a couple hours later, but almost, like you said, 700 milligrams. To me, that's an edibles dinner. Yeah. Like 700 milligrams sounds like a lot, but that's a, that's like a seven course meal. Yeah, exactly. If you can, if you can go and spread that out over three hours and it's balanced out with CBD based, you're not, the experience you're having is going to be totally different, right? Like it's it, high dose edibles is manageable and there's no reason why we shouldn't have it. One point that I've, I've, I've made a couple of times is we should have a concentrated edible category. There's no reason why we shouldn't have that where it's two or three gummies. You get it at the high dose, but they're not hyper flavored. You're getting raw base gummies that just are high potency. And that's how we introduce it to the system. So that the appeal isn't there. Fine. What, what is the appeal though? Like if we're talking about kids and candies or whatever it is, are we already protecting that with labeling and packaging and all those, these pieces? And at this point, I'm, I always go for the argument of why are we hindering the education of the products to kids versus kind of creating this. We're creating a desire with kids because we're keeping it taboo It's behind. Oh, it's the shaded glass. Oh, it's the, 
well, if they come in and they see that we're having a conversation about this, oh, you like this? Like, it, it makes it yeah. a little bit less taboo. The, the interest in it almost fades away because it's like, oh, well, he's just, he's going to get this. Yeah. Right? Like, like there's, I, there's a better as way. As a kid, I remember my parents took me to the liquor store. Yeah. It was completely normalized. I had no interest in drinking whatsoever. You know, dad gave me a beer. I was like, that's disgusting. <laughs> you know, like I, until you get to be an adult, you don't want that anyway. And yeah. it's the same thing with cannabis. Kids smell cannabis and they're like, yeah, it's like a skunk. I don't really like the smell. They're not going to eat it. Yeah. it's. And if they did taste it, they'd spit it out. Cause it's like most adults think it's an acquired taste anyway. Yeah, exactly. And when it, when it comes to the edibles, if you've got it in a place where it can be confused with regular gummies, it's in a place that it shouldn't be. 100%. For someone like me, I don't have kids wandering around. I don't have like young children wandering around. I don't need to worry about my edibles lying out on my counter because who's going to walk by? Yeah. Girlfriend, another adult. Guess what? If they consciously decide to eat that, knowing who I am, that that's a roller coaster you decided to buckle up on. Yeah. Right. Like for anyone who's a medical consumer, well, my medicine goes in the medicine cabinet and it's like, I have kids around, so I'm the exact opposite. I don't leave it out because I'm responsible. About it. Just like I don't leave my, leave my liquor out on the ca- counter. Cause why ever you want it cold, you put it away. It's in a, it's in a fridge. Yeah. It's, completely out of sight out of mind well exactly it's it's one thing to open up a fridge and see a little tray of concentrate sitting there right beside the beer that's sitting there because it's like oh that's where it gets stored you know not to touch it yeah it's the same with that display of the liquor cabinet that's open and not locked in how many houses or the shelf that has the bottles laid out that's a display with kids there and they just know not to touch it Hundred percent. Like I, right. I think that this is something the government should sort of stay out of. Like I appreciate the regulation around the whole industry, but as far as parenting, like I, I can't trust the government to raise my kids. I need to be be there and say, hey, that's for grownups, and that universally works for anything. You tell your kids, oh, that's for grownups. I'm sorry. Until they're age ten, they don't really care. They're like, yeah, no problem. Like it's instant. And by the time they're 10 plus, you can start to have the conversation on why it is. Yeah. Like they're, it's surprising how much you'll, they can understand if you're willing to take the time and answer the questions that they have so that they understand it. That's more what, the, that's more what it is, is knowing the information enough so you can explain it when they ask certain questions. <laughs> that, that's the exact bud tender strategy, you know? Yeah. Treat your kid, the kids, same way as you treat an adult walking into the store. It's so simple. What, what is that? Oh, that's a, it's a concentrate. There's some terpenes, there's flavors. That's what you should expect from, you know, a semi-medical effect, you know, you know, that's going to give you dry mouth because it's got a ton of uh, linalool in it or whatever the case is, you know, and I, I don't know why we were treating kids as if they're like, they're already not allowed to go into the stores. We shouldn't be treating them as if 
they're too stupid to figure this out. And how many of them, by the time they hit 14 plus, are starting to consume themselves and are just acquiring it through their own way? Because it's yeah. that, that that consumption is not going to stop. It's going to make it's going to be a little bit harder to actually catch because at, if you're smelling a joint being smoked outside, what at this point, what are you going to say? Well, there's homegrown plants like exactly her, like there's people four plants at a time. Uncle's got a bunch of plants. He doesn't care that they're all seeded out. Is he going to notice if someone takes some seeds like or or he's got a big box is he gonna know if somebody grabs a stick out of it or yeah right like it's there's the tracking that you guys do on the licensed producer side is not happening on the homegrown side there's gonna be buds there's gonna be joints there's gonna be the amount of parents who i've heard come into the shop and go yeah my fucking kid stole my distillate pen again (laughs) 14 15 years old takes the pen and just goes off with it right like and that's I'm sure that's not an uncommon thing, especially yeah. if a if a parent loses stuff regularly. It's probably 100%. it's not getting lost; it's being repossessed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they know the price they're paying. They know, like every parent knows when a kid goes into their wallet or their purse. Like it's you're accepting of it, or you have a parenting lesson there. Yeah, exactly, so, and it's. And introducing it in a proper consumption and introducing it, like you're saying, the way alcohol was introduced to you, it sounded very similar the way it was with me. I grew up being around people who drank alcohol, but it was, uh, oh, we're sitting around the campfire, we're visiting, we're drinking. And then you'd see the odd person kind of half stumble their way to the RV, but there was no yelling, there's no fighting, there's no nothing. So when I think of, oh, let's go have a drink, it's we're sitting down around a fire, we're having a couple of beers and that's it. Say no different than what I treat cannabis. Oh, let's go have a smoke while we're sitting down. We're enjoying what we're having. And it's just kind of the center of the, the get together, right? It's just kind of a a reason to do it. You know, last summer was the first summer where everything seemed completely acceptable. Cannabis was at the campfire. Drinking was at the campfire. Everyone was chill, relaxed. There are still people who don't want to partake and, you know, there's no pressure there. Same thing. Hey, I'm going to have a regular pop instead of a, a beer. I'm going to, you know, oh, I, I just don't drink. I don't smoke. But at the same time, we're accepting of each other. No one has to go off to their car or out into the woods for a walk. Um, or It feels like the entire culture, late culture anyway, has accepted it and we're finally at a hey i hate that smell get away from my lawn kind of that all that stuff's gone or or even just if you do step away because it's a group of people who don't enjoy the smell and you go and you go for a walk when you come back and you smell like it there's no it's there's no complaints there's no real looks and and me personally being in a more northern community where it's heavily oil field related where you've got two mindsets within that oil field the people who are where, where do I get the piss clean? And then the other ones are where you're getting the eyeballs. Yeah. It's pretty big swing from those, the people who are just glaring at you going, okay, what the fuck? Like you don't yeah. see very, very many of that. And if you do, they don't say too, too much because they get 
shut down by the people who don't even consume but don't care and that's nice to see yeah we're finally inclusive and included in the community and it's uh it's an interesting change and it's well covid's been a weird thing for the last two years and we're finally at a point where i feel like maybe i can share a pre-roll with somebody like i could be like hey try this for a long time i've been going around and having a multi-packs be like here here's your own yeah but i'm definitely not i'm definitely not giving anybody a, a hemp wrap you know yeah. it's not <laughs> and it's and well covid was was beneficial in the sense of um introducing a bunch of the population to cannabis too for like new consumers or just people who went and did the research because there was content being produced in a heavier scale and it was a little bit more widely accepted at that point because we were on lockdown or people were just oh, i don't i know i don't have to go to work whatever okay let's go see what's going on that i think helped the cannabis community grow but the amount of restrictions that were happening within it maintained a very restricted educational growth so you've got more consumers and we're seeing more people kind of work and talk like you said out at the lake be a little bit more open to learn about it mm. because they're seeing more consumption that way but we need to catch up on the education the support the retail side of things because we were locked down for two years yeah like i i feel that the bud tenders uh, vast majority of bud tenders i know the you know the store managers and people who are very passionate about it they know what they're doing and they they've learned it what i'm seeing is i walk into a store and there's a 19 year old bud tender for instance and they don't know how to sell the product yeah there's i, I feel like there's a massive lack of information and where are you going to get that other than you know a centralized place or I don't to be honest, the AGLC's cannabis course is not teaching them what they need to know. No. Um, the only people able to teach all that is the individual LPs who are producing the product, I think. And I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Like are bud tenders well that's, that same way? Like for, for me, my knowledge is hundred percent self-drive. If I wanted to learn something, I had to go and research it out. I had to go and hunt out that information or a company like Bazam, they've done a whole bunch of educational opportunities, but they've got the money to support those educational events and put those on because they've got a little bit of a larger marketing side and a little bit more of that promotional side to support. When it comes to companies like you guys, it's, it's tough to get out there and provide that information and hit enough bud tenders to actually support and and encourage it and when you get into the can of cabanas and the fire and flowers where they're hiring bodies over quality because that's the like i got as soon as i was gone there was two new people working there to cover the shifts that i worked and two two right like and that that's after it's yeah uh that's a whole nother video that story but two people to replace my one shop and they both were customers and they do not know the product. And what people don't understand is cannabis is sold very easily. You tell the story of the butt. Yeah. That's it. If the consumer Everyone likes the story, the store. they'll, they'll consume the butt. If they don't like the story, 
you tell them another story. 100%. Like every customer that walks in there, you got 15 minutes. They're going to buy something because they came there to buy something. Mm -hmm. Now you can either tell, get, give them something they don't necessarily want, but it's usually a pretty, a pretty easy ask. Like, Hey, what are you looking for? Um, you know, what do you normally smoke? Are you looking to go out or stay in? Is it nighttime or daytime? Like, well, you I mean, have a few leading things and you can tell whatever story you need to. Well, and, and for me, customers fall into one of, th- right off the bat, they fall into one of three categories for me. The new hopeless kind of just, whoa. That you're going to see no matter where you are. That is somebody you have to take by the hand and walk through the experience from step one all the way to step when they're walking out the door. Like you have to take them with that, with them, unless they have somebody who knows what they're doing. Those are going to be one in every 500 plus customers that you see just based off of what I've seen with who I'm working. If you're in the city, you might see it a little bit more often, but the volume of consumers are quite a bit higher than what I had. Then there's going to be the categories of the people that have consumed before they have an idea of what they're doing, but there's going to be the one who knows what they're looking for and they go to the menu. You let them look at the menu. They know what they're looking for. You, you, you let them get their idea. And then you, when they come up and approach you, that's when you initiate the conversation because they know what they're looking for. They went straight to that page or they went straight to the monitor. They know that that item's at, let them look. There's the other ones who just wander around the store and just kind of are looking for something, but they're not quite sure what it is. Those ones you engage right away. What do you enjoy? What do you, do you just ask them? What do you've been smoking on lately? Just something like that to get the idea of where they go for their product. And then you can start from there. Well, do you know if they go, well, I've been enjoying the wedding pie three and a half. Well, do you smoke usually smoke three and a half grams or do you go for pre-rolls? Oh, I'm usually flour. Okay. Well, do you like larger size or smaller size? And you just start with those real generic and, Usually three questions, they'll provide everything that you want because they'll go, oh, he's just asking what I like to smoke. So let's just talk weed. And they'll tell you about all the products that have blown them away or the products that have disappointed them that they've smoked recently. And once you do that with a handful of customers, you realize that they respond very similar when when they're talking about it because everyone kind of, well, let's talk about what I like or what I don't like right off the bat because- Let's see if somebody else is in the same wheelhouse. Like it's it's interesting how their consumers fall into those kind of groups. They know what they want. They're brand new, or it's eh, let's see. Yeah. Like I I walk into a can of cabana because it's the closest store to my house. And <laughs> I get the thing of, oh, uh, this one's really good. I like this. And to me, that's lazy. Like a bud tender just saying, Hey, I like this. You should try it. Well, I'm probably more of the, Hey, I need some detail. I need, I need a story or I'm not going to pick it. I have to do some research. There's 700 options here. I, I'm not going to just pick the first thing you said, just cause, Hey, let's try it. But also probably going to be the most expensive thing on the menu, but, um, it's just it's just lazy and like i i get it it might work for some consumers but 
yeah, I really see a lacking on bud tenders and just those three little items of these are your consumers that you're looking at one, two, or three, at least you should have, you know, 80% of the, the customer base covered yeah. and be like, I can handle that. And it's simple training. Like, hate to say it, but you walk into Foot Locker, they know exactly how to take care of you. Yeah. It should be the same at any dispensary. And, and by no means am I saying that you have to fall into where I am, where like I, I train myself on everything because I have an interest in everything. I come from EMS and firefighting. Those are literally jack of all trades based industries. You need to know a little bit about everything because you're going to be doing a lot of a little bit of everything. So my personality, my interests, they fall into that where I like knowing enough about anything to where I can carry a conversation about it. That doesn't have to be you. You can be the oil person in that shop. And if a consumer comes up and they go, well, what's good for the concentrates? I don't usually smoke concentrates, but these are the products I've been hearing really good reviews on from these consumers. I heard really good lemon flavor from this one. I heard kind of a cakey taste from this one. And this one just kind of ends your night. Yeah. Right. And if you can do that, then at least the the consumer is going to look at it and go, oh, you're not consuming this product, but at least you're caring enough to ask the people who are and detail it. Because if you consume these based these oils as your primary consumption and edibles and that's what you learn about and can talk about for days on days on days well guess what if you provide that the concentrate or the indica or the pre-roll person is going to share their knowledge with you when you share your knowledge on these you you find what you enjoy to consume and then you dive into that hole Cause there's enough rabbit holes within this industry that everyone can be the person of their interest at their dispo because one indica person is not the same as another indica person, two different endocannabinoid endocannabinoid systems that are being affected and being utilized. Different experiences, different products are going to be smoked. Like find, find your wheelhouse and dive into it and be honest with the consumer when you do like yeah like i i love i love going into a shop where they're like well i don't know about this and if i know about it i'll spend it i'll sit there and i'll talk to you about it if you can teach yeah. me about something that you do know about I, there was a time i i don't remember where i was working but the first rule of sales was don't lie to the customer yeah. and i i feel like that's missing right now to, to some extent and you know and it's partially because the regulations are saying, hey, you're not allowed to talk to the producer. You're not allowed to do this. So you just make up a story. Like, how do you sell anything? You have to you have to fill in the blanks. Well, I was I was very lucky to be able to have my laptop right on because the way that the counter was set up, we had a very far side that was covered by another shelf. And it like it was it was odd and it didn't really um have anything showcased in there so i was able to have my laptop set up right there the first nine months of me working in the dispo 90 percent of the consumers that i wasn't 100 sure on it was like you know what i'm not i'm not 100 sure on this i'm gonna pull up this information while you're looking at the menu i'll make sure to have it up and we'll read it over together nine months i did that with probably 80 plus percent of the consumers that came in and do you want to know who who are the consumers and customers that come back to me that came back to me until the very last day I went there, 
the ones that I turned my laptop around and went, I don't know about this. Let's learn. That's a customer for life. You've created this kind of tribal moment with them and they're coming back to your store, not because of the products necessarily, because of the service. Yeah. You created an experience. And if the, if the customer goes, well, I don't care. Sure. But you go and do that research afterwards, because if you don't know about that and they asked, guaranteed you're going to get asked again. Because nine times out of 10, when I did that research, that conversation got brought up four, five, six times again in that same shift. Because there is something, there's some reason that people are now thinking like this. They saw something on the news or they watched a podcast or there's something that's triggered that question. 100%. Right? Like, and that's, and that's how you have progressive growth as a bud tender. You take the stuff that you don't know, you be honest about it. And if you have to, you use your phone because if you've got supervisors that are giving you shit because you go, I don't know, let me pull my phone out and make sure that I'm giving you the right information. Probably shouldn't be supervising. You know what, man? Everyone in those stores that works there or comes in there is a fully grown adult and you should be able to look at your phone to pull information. If you're working and it's for work, like I get it. Like if somebody's on Facebook wasting time, mm-hmm. That's not acceptable, but hundred percent. If you're looking up the consumer's product that they're asking for from that producer, there's no better way to serve your customer at that moment than educating each other. And, and the knowledge that you retain while you're searching that information up is going to hold a thousand times more than if you were just reading it, passing by in a book or just scrolling through the AGLC online website when you're doing an order, because there's a conversation that's in that's intertwined with that piece of knowledge you're trying to maintain. Like there's so much that plays into one another within it that it doesn't take, especially in the city where you have that consistent engagement and interaction, it won't, it won't take long for you to educate yourself right now. Of course, there should be a resource to support the bud tenders. We are missing that resource huge. And I'm trying to, to kind of bridge that gap by talking to you and, and some of the other LPs, because there's, there's so much information that the bud tenders are lacking that would just improve the industry. And it could help actually direct the consumers to improve the industry with their money. Cause that's how we're going to see the change is the monetary effect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's lots of, there's lots that needs changing and it's, it's funny because it's not the same experience. If you go to the States, it's completely different. You get a fully formed experience. It might not be perfect, but it's a lot closer than what we have. Like the quality assurance and the testing that's done in Canada. I would love to see that implemented down in the States. And as soon as you have that, that product quality assurance and the testing for mildew and because there was a, an article back in April that was like California's 90% of the product on the California shelves have powdery mildew or mold in it. It's like, yeah. Hmm. Don't really want to be smoking that. And it's, it's not good. The, it's the fifth largest GDP in the, in, in the world. And their market has that. If you had the testing and the quality assurance, the quality of the buds there would be amazing. You'd see a whole bunch of farmers drop off, but if they're producing 
mold and powdery mildew, they really shouldn't be calling themselves farmers. I mean, figure it out. Like you, if you're a commercial farmer, you apply pesticides or you do what you have to do to make that crop sellable and powdery mildew on an outdoor grow. That's like unacceptable powdery mildew in an indoor grow. Like you can take care of that. You just have to do it in advance. Like you can't fix that, that, that fuck up. Like it, you keep it clean, you maintain it. You're not going to have an issue. Powdery mildew totally avoidable i'd say most of the lps in canada don't have that issue um or at least they shouldn't have that issue and if they do they need to reach out to a couple companies uh call me i'll consult on it and (laughs) we'll get it fixed um there's no reason for it and the fact i like that we started as medical in canada because it was unacceptable like if you have a an immune compromise I'm not sending anything your way that is going to make you sick. Um, right now, like treatment, uh, radiation is, you know, a hot topic a little bit for LPs because some companies can't produce without some microbial content. They go and get it radiated. Um, and either it's electron beam, which is super safe, or it's gamma. And you know what? I'm not smoking gamma product if I can avoid it. But again, it should be safe for everybody. And to that point, the the government structure and regulation works great. It's yeah. it, I'd say it's comparable to meat. Like nobody is getting sick and dying from buying pork at the grocery store because the government stepped in and they do the QA piece there. Yeah, and, um, I, and I agree that the quality assurance side of the market has been amazing because if the product doesn't maintain, the LPs have got, what is it, three grows? that you have to go through and batch, fire batch, before you can put another one on market. Yeah, like, like it's a big investment. You don't, you don't screw that up on purpose. Like, you know, even for a micro, I bet a micro is like a million dollars almost before you get a crop done. Like if you're investing that kind of money and time, you go the extra mile. And it's one of the things in the States, you can start an operation for like nothing. You could probably run an unlicensed operation and get by. Oh, amount, who knows? The amount of <laughs> the amount of humble faced grows that are just packing up garbage bags, bringing it to the bottom of the mountain, and who's the wholesaler that's bringing it to the dispo? And that's and that's where you're getting those powdery mildew and that type of issue because it's the guys that are just flipping seeds every year, right? And then you've got guys like the cookies growers out there in Humboldt that are just doing unbelievable product or the medical growers out there they're doing amazing stuff but that's not the majority of the product that's being put to market (laughs) that's the medical and the exclusive market where you're paying out of the ass or you know somebody within it right like it's if we had the quality assurance in in california that would be the market to beat They've got the population, they've got the money, and people say Alberta is the wild west of the cannabis industry. Yeah, and in Canada, it may be, with the exception of the THC cap that everyone's battling with now. Um, you've, you've got pretty restricted limits that come from Health Canada, not just the HLC. Yeah. Like, uh, like my experience with Health Canada, they've been 
educational. Like we haven't, we've never been punished by health Canada. Like audits go through, I think we've been through four or five audits now and uh, you know, no major problems obviously, but they're not there to punish people. They're there to just, Hey, you're doing a good job. Let's see if you can do 1% better every time we come by. Yeah. And Um, that's awesome to hear. That's, that's the quality assurance you want. Right. I, I, I can't imagine because when I heard, when we started this, we were hearing things like can trust and health Canada shutting everybody down and they kind of became the boogeyman. Like, Hey, if health Canada shows up at your door, you better call every staff member and tell them to hide the things. Um, Only happened got to a us. spare grow room in the back. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Guys, I, I close think... the curtains. <laughs> Yeah, that, that can trust is kind of a standalone issue, I think, there. <laughs> well, you know, there's you know, there's a couple stories here and there. Like there were those guys in Saskatchewan that just were buying gray great <coughs> market product and putting it out the door. Right. Yeah. I think that's happened a couple of times, but for the most part, everybody's pretty uh pretty stable and you know upstanding. I think most of the growers in Alberta are just wishing they could sell in their own province a little bit more. Like, it, it'd be, if Alberta wanted to become that Wild West style, they should open up Farmgate level of sales to where a shop like you or a dispo like you could open up a shop right out of there. A legal-based retailer. Or if yeah. you've got an actual outdoor facility, set up a base there like something like that to where you can have that direct from the producer into the shelves it's the freshest place to access it then like a wine tour or something exactly beautiful and then if Uh, you you had to certain companies that wanted to do a shop to shop to shop transfer then it opens up the small craft-based companies and dispos the single mom and pop shops to work with you guys about buying a bo- a single box to try and move. Yeah. Right. Like there's, I don't, so- I don't see the issue. Like, I don't see an issue. Like they're licensed as a retailer. We're licensed as a producer. As long as the province gets their tax when it gets sold, I don't see an issue with the retailer buying a box direct and, you know, remitting that to the province and be like, yeah, that's what it got sold for. Here's your tax piece. Yeah, like if anything, or, it's doing them a favor. Like AGLC, hey, you didn't have to do any work. Well, and 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 the way that I could see it being easiest for AGLC would be to allow the licensed producers to have a small dispo-based shop up front, where they yeah you go and you register like a normal dispensary, and you have to do all that tracking that you normally do. Yeah. But if you only have four boxes of each of your product because it's meant for I come through on a tour I can buy something from you guys right there if I really enjoyed it gives me access to buy right from you guys you then get you can not worry about marking up putting the retail markup on it and it gives me as a consumer access to the freshest product available and yeah you only keep two or three boxes of each of your product because it's just something you're utilizing for this small tours or when you're doing an event or something like that yeah but a small craft shop they go hey 
we want to, we're selling out of your, your ounces. We need an extra box and AGLC doesn't have it. Can we do a shop to shop transfer? Yeah, there you go. And oh, it, yeah. they get the freshest access to it. Yep. Right. Or there's, they're hosting a pop-up for you guys and they don't, weren't able to get one of the base of products. Okay. Well you do a shop to shop transfer. You now have that product in there that you can put yeah. at a 10% discount for the pop-up day. Like there's, so many ways that it would benefit the medium to small growers because they can arrange it that way and do it all at once. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. I honestly, I can't see how anyone's doing going to do pop-up shops or when it becomes available, like event spaces, like a beer garden, for example, like how is anyone going to have enough product to, to even run one? Yeah. Like if you're, if you're limited and you get three cases and really to run an event like that, you probably need, what 12 cases well yeah depending on depending on the size and where you're located right like if you're in the city you can't just get away with a two case order like we couldn't slave lake yeah, yeah 24 jars we put it at 10 percent off it'll sell out that day maybe in the city you're looking at 50 plus jars if you've got a pop-up for one of yeah. the products that they may have and you need to have 50 of another so you have that little bit of a variety it's with the way that the system's set up, it's not easy to do that. Like even, even for us, like I, I wanted to buy some of our product for a staff function. Be like, hey, you guys knocked out of the park. There's a 30% crop. I want to buy you guys all pre-rolls. Well, I couldn't find a single store in the city that had more than, you know, one, one case left of anything. Well, or just the ability to do your own um, quality assurance on the way this product smokes and enjoys because unless you guys have a testing facility based approval you can't touch you that can't product until it's labeled sealed and purchased just exactly. like anything else they have to buy it the same day we do unless you have a specific testing based and it's a pain in the ass to get it apparently it's i think it, I, I think it's actually impossible to get I, like there are, you have to have a proven research project. So pre, unless you have a university working out of your facility, I don't think anyone really has it. No, I, Bazam, I know Bazam is applying for theirs. Yeah. On the they on have their five one, facilities too. On their one facility. Yeah. Their, their one, their, their uh, pheno hunting facility and it's in BC and it's right by their main location. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was an association with UBC or something along those lines. Oh yeah. Yeah. To be able to maintain that research. It makes sense. But how big is Bzam? Like they're, yeah. they're a public company. They're, well, I'd got, say they're, they're going to breach that top 30 companies pretty soon. And they, they've done it in, in the sense of growing the community. They, for a large scale company, they've been probably one of the best ones for, not taking over, but kind of putting additional ladders down for the people coming up, which sure. I can respect. I, I've got huge respect for companies that they're climbing the ladder and what are they, instead of kicking the one out from under them, they're putting two or three yeah. more down below to help the, the people climb. Like the partnership they're doing with Dune is an actual partnership. It's not a buyout. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's awesome to see that. It's going to be nice to see more craft growers get, Canada-wide based exposure and growth, but 
it's tough to do when you've got limited growth size a growth facility 100 <laughs> percent. you know what we're, we're we're getting to the end a little bit yeah we know. we covered a whole bunch of topics You know, I, I just want to put one small piece in there, you know, uh, show myself a little bit. Uh, Freedom is doing facility tours for bud tenders. If you're watching this video, um, yeah, hit us up, info at Freedom Cannabis, and uh, we'd love to show you guys what we do. Uh, we're in a medical grade facility, um, 12,000 square feet of canopy, and we produce amazing cannabis. Um, yeah, the only thing we're more proud of than our cannabis is the people that work here. Yeah, that's that's huge, especially within the cannabis industry. The places that tend to produce the best product, the atmosphere from when you walk up to the front door to when you walk out is always really welcoming, really just open and happy to be there from the people who are taking care of the plants and trimming all the way up to that the higher management the stresses are different but they're shared amongst everyone and it's very community-based which is a huge black and white comparison to being in hospitals and ems bays where it is very much doggy dog kind of a mentality and you're working beside somebody but you're not necessarily working with them at the same time so it's hugely beneficial to see that and hearing that you guys are like that explains why the quality of the cannabis is consistent and it's being enjoyed so readily across the province and the couple of other places you guys are set up in like it's it's huge you know what it, it took a long time to get the right culture and you know there's been more than enough more than a few people that have come in worked here and it just wasn't for them and it didn't quite fit and Hell, we made lots of mistakes too. Like culture-wise, we probably were toxic for a little bit, trying to push more out of people than was reasonable. Like we've been pushing for these high high numbers just so we could sell wholesale, just so we could get our product to retail stores. And uh, you know, it's it's disappointing when a crop comes in less than what you expected, right? Uh, how do you fix that? It takes months and months. Probably took us two years before we hit something, knocked something out of the park and said, hey, that's perfection. Um, and there's a lot of beating up on each other and blaming, uh, or at least there was in the past. Now we're at a point where, hey, it, it was worth it. And now we can say, hey, there's, there's blame to go around when a mistake happens, but it doesn't matter. We're all here to fix it and you know, produce that perfect thing. Oh yeah, there's there's always got to be that little bit of the sharpening stone and the edge that you've got to you got to battle through, right? But yeah. once you get through that kind of opening stress stage, because half of it is just, are we going to be profitable enough to keep live? Because that yeah. that is a huge factor. And when you're white bagging or um, white labeling product for other companies, you're not having the well, what are the, what are the consumers buying? Are we, are we providing a product for the consumers? It's no, you're one step further back. It's, are we providing a product that the marketing company for that is liking the production company for that is liking the packaging company for that is liking there's, 
a lot more individual opinions that play a factor versus a market opinion. And that would be a totally different level of stress than what you have with this, where it's like, oh, it's not moving very well in the north, but it's working great in central and south. Hmm. I guess we're just focusing marketing down there because the product's just not what people want up north. Yeah. You, you can adjust and adapt or it's, oh, have we spent any marketing money up north? Oh, we spent none, but it's all been central and south. Okay, that's probably why it's moving down there and not up there. Yeah. Right? You told you somebody a story and it's working. Exactly. Right? But 100%. it was awesome having you on. We covered a huge amount of detail and a lot of information. And uh, this is definitely going to be beneficial for both bud tenders and the consumers. And I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for, uh, for taking the time today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Appreciated the invite. Sorry it took so long to make it happen. <laughs> oh, no worries. Um, we'll definitely have to figure out a time for me to come down there and do the facility and meet the crew because uh, I've enjoyed all the products you've put out. The birthday cake has definitely been my go-to lately, but uh, it's good to know that my guess on those pre-rolls were pretty accurate <laughs> the way that you yeah. guys rolled. Knocked it out of the park. Perfect. Yeah. Definitely uh, recommend you guys going and checking out Freedom Cannabis. But uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up here. Thank you, everyone, for coming and checking this out. Thank you for uh, coming on, and I hope you guys have a great day.